right, welcome to Lake Higgins Live. It is Sunday night, August 22nd, the year of our Lord, 2021, or as you might call it, Game Week. Week zero is here. We're jam-packed tonight. We've got a lot of places to go, so I'm not going to fill the show with three minutes of nonsense to start off. We've got SEC scrimmage intel, second scrimmage in the books for a vast majority of programs around the SEC. It's now time for week one prep for those programs, so I'm going to hit too many to name. I'm going to hit a number of programs tonight. And some, some new contacts we made this week. I told you last week, our best source of information. Sure, it's nice to talk to coaches. Sure, it's lovely to talk to our team insiders. I mean, that's an invaluable resource. But when someone in the recruiting department, someone in the training department, someone on a coaching staff, let's say from an administrative level or let's say an analyst level, hops in the DMs and says, love the show. You're not at will to share this publicly, but I just wanted to inform you of something. That's worth its weight in gold. Had a lot of that this week. Continue to welcome it. So thank you for that. With that said, I'm going to go across the nation. I'm going to give you several whispers and pieces of intel that we've had from fall camps. Again, as programs are either approaching or already wrapping up their second scrimmage. And after that, again, it's time to prep for your first opponent. I want to talk for a second with you tonight also about the big-time Playoff contending programs, the expectation level 10 programs, your Bamas and Ohio States and Clemsons of the world, that you probably, if you just read preview magazines or your mind just works in reverse order where you remember last year, think may be invincible, and they're not. This year, more so than the last several years, the top teams are not. I've equated it to Redwoods standing out above the canopy that's maybe had the top shaved off of them to a certain degree. I think that is the top of college football this year. Everyone is within reach. That's going to take a puncher's reach that's pretty wide, but everyone's within reach this year. I'm going to tell you exactly what I mean with each team one by one. And North Carolina is on the brink of something very special. Something happened earlier today that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, and so we foretold that. wasn't the hardest prediction in the world to nail But I want to now circle back, given that this big-time commitment has happened, and I want to discuss North Carolina football with you, and not just in the framework of, ooh, you should be excited if you're a Tar Heel fan. The rest of college football should really be taking notes and really be paying attention because there's something that a lot of other mismanaged programs out there are doing that North Carolina's not even worried about doing. They're too busy worried about building a winner in Chapel Hill. So we'll get to that towards the end of the show. We've got a huge week coming up. On this very show, the Sunday show, next week, we'll be doing Ramen Noodle Express. Yes, it's that time again. If you don't know what it is, you will know this time next week. We'll be doing game previews. I will be revealing what we are going to call the Late Kick Renaissance Tour, kind of like a concert tour because I'll be on the road every Saturday this fall. And so every Sunday night, I'm going to hand out not only our first pick on the Ramen Noodle Express, and that is our betting segment every week, but I'm going to be letting you know which city we're headed to the following week. So we'll be revealing that on the Sunday show too. Probably not the hardest thing to guess for week one as to where we'll be, but subsequent weeks, it could get a little tricky. And I wanted to also let you know, there are a couple of other things imminent. By imminent, I mean any day now could be happening that we can't tell you yet. You'll know when they do happen, but we cannot tell you about them yet. So it's going to be really fun. So thank you so much for letting the show be what it is already. And now we're ready to make it sort of just mushroom cloud into the season and take off exponentially. So with that being said, let's dive into tonight's show. And I wanted to start in the SEC, SEC scrimmage intel. Several programs had their second and final scrimmage before the start of the season this past Saturday. If you're watching on Sunday, that is yesterday. I want to start at LSU because there's something going on there that you need to take note of. Now, I know a lot of you have already formulated your opinion on what LSU is going to be in 2021, and maybe even beyond. Some that are of the more glass-half-empty variety have written Ed Orgeron off. They have already written the ending, in other words, of the Ed Orgeron chapter of LSU football. So if you are of that camp, you believe LSU is going to be terrible this year. They're going to vastly under-exceed or underachieve relative to expectation again, and that staff will be out of there. Now, I don't have a problem if you think like that. I don't necessarily agree with it. I don't have a problem with that. But what I am telling you is if LSU fails this year, if this coaching staff ultimately is out the door, I don't think the reasons that it's going to happen have already occurred. See, a lot of people would lead you to believe because LSU was bad in 2020, it has set in motion this chain of events 
that is going to end in Ed Orgeron and this entire staff having the dump button hit on him, and there's nothing you can do about it at this point. It's already in motion. Well, that's nonsense. Okay, that's not the case. Now, I'm not telling you that it couldn't end up bad, but if it does, the reasons lie in the future. They don't lie in the past, and the reason I'm talking future past so much here is because when you start talking to folks on the ground in Baton Rouge, specifically about these last two scrimmages, and really specifically about yesterday's scrimmage, here's the irony. The irony is, if LSU fails, I think a lot of the reasons are in the future, but if they succeed, and this staff overachieves relative to expectation, it gets LSU football right back on the tracks as a national contender in 2021, I think the impetus has already happened. And I think it's this freshman signing class. This was a minor miracle that's been overlooked, I think, nationally. LSU was a disaster in 2020. You know that much. But what you may have forgotten is they maintained the number three class in the country. And there was negative recruiting from all angles. And you didn't have to negative recruit. All you had to do is flip on the TV and say, look, you want to go play for that? Well, enough kids did. And so now we start to hear whispers and intel out of LSU's camp. And you've had a lot of guys banged up. Obviously, the quarterback position has gotten a lot of the national spotlight. And Garrett Nussmeyer, true freshman, has stepped up and now been a very adequate quarterback, too, that they can feel comfortable putting that label on. But it doesn't stop there. It only starts there. There is a laundry list of names of true freshmen who not only are filling the two deep for LSU, they're going to play. And they're going to play a lot this year. And if you follow LSU football, this list of names, I want you to think about where LSU would be without these guys. Mason Smith is going to be a heavy rotation guy in their interior defensive line rotation. Brian Thomas and Malik Neighbors are going to be mainstays in the wide receiver rotation, if not in week one, then easily at the midpoint of the season. Right now, you have got a banged-up situation at a bunch of positions, running back, chief among them. John Emery has not been able to do at all in camp what they want him to be able to do. Now, the hope is he's going to be healthy eventually. The ground game is pivotal. Everything about LSU's offense this year stems from an effective ground game. Well, because those two, Price and Emery, haven't been able to give it a full go in camp, Armani Goodwin and Corey Kiner, I'm just looking at a whole list of freshmen here, have stepped up and not only taken some valuable reps, but they themselves have developed. And the feedback you get from people on the ground at LSU is it started off as, all right, you guys are in because those two are out. Now it's, you guys are pretty good you're probably going to see meaningful playing time this year. You continue, and you look at Sage Ryan, who, if healthy, will be a major factor in the secondary for him. And also, just to circle kind of back around to Nussmeyer, when when T.J. Finley left, people said, no problem, we still got three quarterbacks. When Miles Brennan went down, people said, "Uh uh-oh, I thought Max was still going to win the job, but man, if he goes down, we got a true freshman over here who's never played a game. Well, that's still the case. The only difference is, Garrett Nussmeyer's looked very good. Now, a lot of people have thought he's the future of LSU football since the day he signed, but that wasn't in 2021. Future is not defined as 2021, and no one's rooting for injury, and no one's ready for him to take the reins tomorrow. But Ed Orgeron himself yesterday said, we feel a whole lot better than that. So I am saying all of that to tell you, if you see LSU going into Tuscaloosa, Alabama in early November, whenever that game is, and the SEC West is on the line, and major bowl implications are on the line, it's going to be because this freshman signing class that Ed Orgeron and his staff held together in the midst of a disastrous 2020 season helped them propel themselves into that position for 2021. Now, if they fail, they very well may. The reasons are ahead of them. But if they succeed this year, I think a lot of the reasons are right here in my hand, this very official post-it that has half their signing class on it. How about Georgia? Uh, This was something that we led the show with last week. I think we led two shows with it, prompting someone to say that we were speaking too much about Georgia. Even though, Colin, correct me if I'm wrong, it was the most watched clip on our YouTube channel this week. So I put Georgia second in the rotation. This is one of the focal points of the SEC right now. And we can't just talk about Alabama nonstop. I mean, we got to talk about Georgia here. The most predictable headline coming out of this weekend scrimmage at Georgia was as follows. Tell me where you heard this last week. Offense much improved. Well, congratulations there. Uh, Georgia has that in common with about 98% of college football programs that have had their second scrimmage now. But that was very, very predictable. 
Here's what the most important sentence I heard was coming out of Georgia's scrimmage this weekend. It was from Jake Rowe over on Dogs 24-7. This is his scrimmage intel. Go pay for the rest. But this is the freebie I'm going to give you. I'm told that Cedric Van Pran, that is the probable starter at center, given the absence of Warren Erickson, had a really good day, especially in the run game. In fact, the entire offensive line got the better of the defensive line in the run game for most of the scrimmage. That's no small sentence I just gave you there. One of the chief concerns around Athens has been the effectiveness of this offensive line, specifically on the interior, and really specifically because of the challenge they have awaiting them in week one. Well, it just so happens one of the most comparable defensive fronts to Clemson in America is Georgia. So they do get the benefit of seeing that every day in practice. I got to be honest with you, that's not a sentence I expected to hear. What I expected to hear was they probably arranged that scrimmage to where the offense got a little confidence about itself. I did not expect to be told that, hey, offensive line one-on-one now in a lot of these cases got the best of that defensive line in the run game. Uh, The second thing is the wide receiver health. Now, we understand who they will and won't be without. I'm going to address that in a second because there's some confusion out there. But there's a question mark around several more guys. So Jermaine Burton, we spoke about him at length Thursday. And I told you the thought is they're going to get him back this weekend. Now, that is a, an integral piece of this passing game. They got to have him. They got to have Kyrus Jackson. Well, Burton scrimmaged yesterday, so he's good to go. That's very good news. Kyrus Jackson was dressed out, non-contact, but the word from Athens is he will be good to go. He's on track to be able to do everything they need him to do for a game week. But Kirby Smart did speak about the injury situation at Georgia, and I had a lot of you in my inbox, given that we've been very adamant that Darnell Washington and Tyke Smith are going to miss the Clemson game. I got Kirby's quote here. Actually, I don't. I don't know. Anyway, he said something along the lines of, we think all those guys are going to be back. He said something along the lines of, they're all day-to-day, and we think we'll be full health, full speed ahead against Clemson. Um, you ask my opinion, I'm telling you, no, I don't think Darnell Washington's playing against Clemson. No, I don't think Tyke Smith is playing against Clemson. However, the other names we just mentioned, yeah, yeah, I do think there's a very good chance those guys do. And Georgia can beat Clemson with that rotation on the field. So that's the latest out of Athens. Now we shoot over on I-20. Let's take it about two and a half hours. Let's go to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. We need to talk about a freshman wide receiver. If we had frozen ourselves in a cryogenic chamber after the spring game, and then we unfroze ourselves today, and we said, hey, we're going to be talking about a freshman wide receiver on the show tonight, we would have thought a Jai Hall, right? And he's not had a bad fall camp. But that's not the freshman wide receiver that's been the biggest standout. I talked to several people who were at this scrimmage yesterday, and what I always like to do is I don't tell other people I have spoken to their friends or other people who were at the scrimmage because what I want is independent feedback. And so I'll ask, who stood out? And there were a variety of other names behind number one, but the number one name off of everyone's lips who were at the scrimmage yesterday, Jojo Earl. Jojo Earl is a true freshman who was not an early enrollee. He was not there in the spring, at least on the field. And so we kept being told when Earl gets on campus, That's going to be a difference maker. Tim Watts, who runs the uh, Bama Online site, he has been adamant about that name. Now, the problem with Watts is he's adamant about a lot of stuff that's ridiculous. And so I have to really have a fine filter on what he tells me. But, man, he's been adamant about JoJo Earl. And I think he has been right in this case. JoJo Earl, there's no way they're keeping him off the field. I don't know if it's going to be punt return early and then spot duty at receiver. I don't know if he's just on the field in week one and he shines. But JoJo Earl is going to be... He's going to be an integral part of Alabama's passing game. Now, the other name, which is just a monster, is Will Anderson. Now, Will Anderson, Will Anderson's almost worked himself into the role that Tim Smith had at Alabama once upon a time where they get into scrimmage situations, and I kid you not, there were times where they'd pull Tim Smith out of scrimmages, a healthy scratch, because he was so abusive to their offensive line and their overall timing and rhythm offensively that they couldn't get anything going. So, Tim Smith, we know what you can do. Get off the field so we can actually give our, our poor young children on offense here a fighting chance. And so Will Anderson, I don't know if they pulled him off the field yesterday. I was told Will Anderson lined up against Evan Neal. Evan Neal is, despite what some mock drafts out there would tell you, absolutely a first-round offensive tackle in this upcoming draft and handled him in several occasions, handled him. So Will Anderson, Will Anderson's one of, Will Anderson is probably the best football player on Alabama's team. You would have several people inside the program back that up. Uh, that's a guy who you just, 
you want to take and you want to say, Will, all right, you're done with the game. I want you to go over here and this is a bubble wrap chamber and I want you to stay in that until next Saturday uh, because you're, you're scared. He's going to get a hangnail or someone's going to hit him on the sidewalk with a scooter. He's very valuable, very valuable. Not the only legitimate pass rusher they have there, but very valuable. Uh, also, if you'll notice, there are a couple of names that Nick Saban keeps mentioning. And believe it or not, he's not lying to you. Jamison Williams and Henry Toa Toa. Now, what do those names have in common? Well, obviously, they both transferred to Alabama this past uh, offseason. And there was some speculation. Well, that guy couldn't start at Ohio State. You think he's just going to walk into Alabama and start? Yep, probably the best receiver they have right now. Henry Toa Toa, he's walking into the most loaded linebacker room in America. You think he's going to start? Yep, day one starter. They weren't stupid. They knew what they were doing. That's what Alabama's always going to do in the transfer portal. They are going to have... When I say the bottom of their roster, I don't want to be disrespectful. They're going to have some good players that can't crack the rotation there, exit the program, and then they're going to cherry-pick some of the best players in the nation that want a shot to play for the best and didn't originally commit to them, and that's how it's going to work. So, you know, as usual, Nick Saban pretty prophetic about that. But I do want to warn you, and I'm going to come back to this later in the show, there are going to be some out-of-whack expectations for Alabama early in the season. They're favored by 19 over Miami. Now, this is not a point spread prediction right now. We'll be doing that next week. This is not going to be an offensive buzzsaw of a team coming out of the gate. They're going to be good. I'll probably have them rated as my number one team in the country. But you need to understand something. Nick Saban, in fact, here's a quote. I think it's going to be a bit of a work in progress with this group, the wide receiver group. But I do think we have enough talent there to have some really good players that can play fast and be explosive. Translation. We're going to eventually be a very effective passing game. But two things that you hear from people who are close to Alabama is Bryce Young's very good, receiving core very good. Uh, There's a lot of green about them, obviously. But the thing that made them so lethal last year was the timing and the rhythm. Yes, you had all the tools there, too. And yes, they were so versatile. But the timing and rhythm, you never even saw a receiver have to break stride. And talking to a couple of folks at that scrimmage yesterday, It's not that Bryce Young's not making the throws. Like, you and I can complete uh, the same 15-yard throw in the air. But if your receiver gains 30 yards after the catch and mine is tackled immediately, it may be because mine had to stop and reach across his body to catch a ball that was just thrown a little bit behind him, whereas you hit yours in stride. That is the difference, in some cases, between shaving 10 points per game off your average because you can't quantify it. You never know what precise timing and rhythm means to the overall point total of a game. And I'm telling you that to tell you if you don't see them carve through Miami like a knife through hot butter in week one, don't go out sounding alarm bells. They're going to be good, but it's not going to be like that right off the bat. It's not like they just just reload. I know that's a popular talking point, but in reality, you don't reload and continue on the path that they were on last year. So it'll take some time. They'll be pretty good, though. I think Bama will be pretty good. And lastly, in the SEC, I wanted to talk about Arkansas for a second. Uh, Bruce Hornsby is one of my favorite musicians of all time. No relation here that I know of, but Malik Hornsby is an interesting name to watch at Arkansas. He had a huge scrimmage yesterday, so he had big numbers, but scrimmages can lie to you sometimes. So I'm not even making these statements just correlated with this scrimmage. This is a former guy who was a top 100 player per the 24-7 sports player rankings. Five, not five-star quite, but he was the number five overall dual-threat quarterback. K.J. Hill is the starter for them, and that's not in question. But if you listen to Sam Pittman and you listen to people close to Arkansas talk about Malik Hornsby, I I very strongly believe there's going to come a time, maybe early in the season, where they have design packages for him. That's always popular to say. But I mean really part of their game plan. I don't mean if things go sideways and they can't move the ball, let's throw him in there and see if he can do something. I don't mean in garbage time. I mean competitive game. We decided we were going to do this. It's part of our game plan. We're throwing him out there. He is electric. He can fly. He is not a precision passer right now. got a big arm, but he's not a precision passer right now. But he can give them such a different element that I think Arkansas can use to help them win football games. And the other thing that you need to know about Arkansas is this is a criminally underrated team right now. Everyone has got them discounted, maybe because they just don't know how to properly interpret how good the team is, but mainly it's because they look at the schedule. And the schedule's insane, but you don't rate a team's effectiveness and you don't rate a team's power based off the schedule. Because the fact of the matter is, if I gave them Coastal Carolina's schedule, they would be favored in all 12 games. And all of a sudden, people would take them seriously. Arkansas has got an exceptional culture. 
They love the internal dynamic right there. Uh, Sam Pittman is a guy everyone wants to play for. He has got a locker room that'll go over the cliff for him. And I want to tell you, I know the point spreads may lie to you and say otherwise, that Texas game in week two and when they play Texas A&M in Dallas in week four, those are going to be knife fights. There'll be dogs in both of them. Those will be knife fights. And there's a lot of confidence that they can not only win one of those, but win both of them. And when you look at that schedule in totality, I know it looks daunting. But see, you don't play a schedule on Saturday. You play one football team on Saturday. So when Arkansas plays Texas, they just got to beat Texas. And there's going to absolutely be a path there. When they play A&M, they just got to beat A&M. A&M's not going to run them out of the building. They probably won't have the offense to do that at that point in the year. Arkansas, really good complementary team, probably a little bit better in terms of overall quality this year, even though it's being discounted nationally. But the culture, you know, the sum being greater than maybe the individual parts, that'll be the name of the game with Arkansas this year. So just keep an eye on them. I think it's a really underrated team. All right, let's move on. I got a lot of quotes here. Have I read all these quotes? No, I haven't. Got one coming up here. Um, so now we zoom out and let's go around the country. Uh, I got several more whispers and intel. It just always makes me feel like a CIA agent when we, when we talk like that. I thought about getting one of those IFBs that run down the, uh, the sleeve and just, just talking like that sometimes. Uh, but I don't believe in sleeves, so we can't do that. So let's talk about Texas. Boy, we got to lead with it again, don't we? We still don't have a quarterback, but we do have a headline that again was kind of predictable, but still refreshing to hear. Offense was much improved. So that's good. Scrimmage one to scrimmage two. Sark confirms offense much improved. Um, I, so there's a, there, there are two ways you can take this. When someone tells you quarterbacks performed equally, that doesn't really tell you any of the story. Because if we're both terrible, well, we're equal. If we're both Hall of Famers, maybe we're both equal. So when I get told, eh, both quarterbacks kind of performed at the same level yesterday, that's telling me a lot to really tell me nothing. So it greatly helped when Sark afterwards said they both played winning football today. The reason you know that's probably not BS is because last week he was not shy at all about telling you they were not good today. So there was a nice little quantum leap in production this week, apparently, between uh, Casey Thompson and, and um, um, Kyle, man, what in the world? Hudson Card. Yeah, I had a, who did I have in my head? Kyle McCord. I don't know how that happened. Anyway, so Hudson Card and Casey Thompson, that's live. That's one of the risks of doing live whatever we do, web. Um, It's good to hear that because Steve Sarkeesian, he's not a guy who beats around the bush about that stuff. But also, Xavier Worthy is a guy who continues to flash. He made several electric plays yesterday. Explosive plays are going to be so critical for them because, again, here's where we are now. We're in a position where it's becoming increasingly, increasingly obvious there will not be one of these quarterbacks who separate. Having said that, I told you last week, I think it's becoming more and more likely they just run a true two-quarterback system in week one. They asked Sark about it yesterday, and he didn't discount that it's a possibility, but he also didn't confirm he was going to do it. But what he did do is he tipped his hand uh, fairly well. He said, well, in an ideal world, I mean, we're picking a guy. Now, we haven't decided on that yet, but in an ideal world, we're picking a guy which probably means they're not going to go into that game thinking 50-50. They're not going to go into that game thinking, all right, first two drives for one, second two drives for the other. I think they're going to roll with a guy. Who's it going to be? I don't know who that's going to be yet. I know Card, who I just remember the name of, took a majority of the first team reps this week. By the way, that B-roll with Sark walking around with Bevo is classic and shooting that cannon. That's great. So it's a very important week, just like last week, of Texas practice. But Xavier Worthy, regardless who wins this job, going to be a big facet of this offense this year. Now I want to go to Oklahoma. And I was talking to someone really close to the program today for a little while. And I wanted to, I wanted to kind of build off of, or maybe even shoot down, some of the, uh, the nasty narrative word that's out there about Oklahoma right now. If people don't buy into Oklahoma... Usually it sounds something like this. I'm not buying into Oklahoma. You mean the team that lost to Iowa State and Kansas State last year? I'm not buying into them. That's the why, or that's the what, I guess. Everyone knows the what. You got to get closer. You got to pull out your magnifying glass every now and then and tell me the why. Why did they? Well, when you zoom in to Oklahoma's season last year, especially when they lost those games earlier in the year, They didn't have Ramondre Stevenson. I mean, they didn't have a ground game they could rely on. They couldn't put teams away. That's what they couldn't rely on. 
And so has that changed this year? Well, yes, in a big way, it's changed. And anytime you talk to someone, as I did earlier today, that's kind of close to the program, man, they all want to talk about several names. They want to talk about Eric Gray, but they want to talk about Kennedy Brooks, who's back this year, Uh, Trey Bradford, the LSU transfer. I mean, those are three dependable names in the backfield at the tailback position. You have right there, just in that one sentence, you have rectified a major problem you had early in the year last year. Now, does that mean that you're incapable of losing some games this year? Of course not. You can still lose games, but it won't be an apples-to-apples comparison. It won't be for the same reasons you lost them last year. Now, there will be some lazy analysis out there of people who say, I don't like them this year because they lost those games. And when they lose one, if they do this year, they'll say, I told you, I knew it. You didn't know anything. You didn't, you didn't know anything more than the person who wins the lottery knew what the numbers were going to be. It's just someone had to be right. And so that person ended up being right. That, though, the running back depth that they have, they are very happy with. And also, and this is no mystery, the defensive depth. And this is a situation where, like I've mentioned a few times, you know, Clayton Smith is a name I keep bringing up. That's a guy who is going to play big-time football for them eventually, but he doesn't have to play as a true freshman. And he doesn't have to play because he's got two or three names in front of him. That was not the case a few years ago, pre-Alex Grinch. That was not the case. They would have to put kids out on the field, probably as a freshman, who were ill-equipped from a fundamental and technician standpoint to play winning football. And as a result, you saw guys really talented get put in a blender on Saturday afternoons. You won't see that this year. It doesn't make them immune from losing. But you're going to have to play at a really high level, and it's not going to be because you put them on skates physically that you beat them this year. Now I want to go to Penn State. I haven't talked about the Nittany Lions in a couple of weeks. Uh, I was also talking to someone close to them today. And, um, man, I just this is close to being a really good team. Uh, the person I talked to was not Jesse, by the way, even though he is on the other end of this broadcast right now. Bravely, and I mean bravely, executing the show through a hurricane. We have a Florida crew and we have a Connecticut crew. The Florida crew has not dealt with a hurricane yet. Our Connecticut crew is working through a hurricane tonight, so we really appreciate that. We'll probably send them T-shirts, personalized T-shirts. Uh, but Penn State's so close to being a really good program. There's a, uh, they're a good program. Penn State's so close to being a really good team this year. There's a lot to like. When you look at them, you see so many areas that you want to bookmark and say, well, that's a strength. That's a relative strength. They're pretty good there. And you keep looking and you keep saying, all right, let me find the weaknesses. And there there are some relative weaknesses, but it's so obvious that it comes down to one thing. And so they seem set at offensive line. I think four out of those five positions are set. I was reading Sean Fitz's stuff over on Lions 247 today, really solid at running back. They got two potential standouts at receiver. Now, Jahan Dotson that you already know about. Parker Washington is a name you should know about, but maybe you don't because you didn't watch last year. Uh, The Temple transfer really needs to pan out for them to be what they can be on the defensive line. But, I mean, inside linebacker, question mark, probably need to find another safety back there opposite Brisker. But it becomes so obvious that those question marks are relative. Most teams would love to have just those question marks. Sean Clifford. That's where the premium is at quarterback. So it's the most obvious thing, but it's so the biggest thing here. When they brought in Mike Yurcich, everyone thought to themselves, what kind of marriage is this? Sean Clifford at quarterback, Yurcich offensive coordinator. And the hope, I think people almost want to speak it into existence, is his skill set fits a lot better with what Yurcich wants to do. Uh, We've got good running backs. We'll have a good enough offensive line. We've got a couple of complimentary pieces at wide receiver. I didn't even mention tight end. They love what they are at tight end. But it doesn't really matter if you get average quarterback play. And so whatever it takes to take Sean Clifford's game to the next level, you just got to hope and pray that Mike Yurcich is the guy to pull that out of him. Because if he can... And if you all of a sudden get elevated quarterback play there, this is a good enough team to beat Wisconsin. This is a good enough team to beat Auburn. This is a good enough team to beat Indiana. This is the part where I try and recite Penn State's schedule off the top of my head. I know eventually the Buckeyes are coming. That's what I know. And it's it's a road trip to Columbus. But the thing about it is you don't have to go undefeated in this game, especially this year. Like you You can make some special things happen. There it is. They got a game at Iowa. All those games are winnable. And they can have a puncher's chance at Ohio State if all that stuff were to come together and gel. But you find me, outside of that game at Ohio State, if you're watching on YouTube, you find me the insurmountable Herculean hurdle that they would have to clear that they can't clear if we knock a few of those dominoes down. And all of a sudden, you make 2020 a distant memory. So I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to let that sizzle for a second. 
What about um, a, a team I've been asked to talk about several times now, and I've neglected it, and it's my fault, and I take full responsibility. Georgia Tech. I've made some noise about Georgia Tech. Uh, Georgia Tech, bold prediction, probably not going to win the ACC this year, but that's not what we're looking for. Expectation level needs to be relative. A lot of times, one of the sad byproducts of the college football playoff era is if you're not expected to contend for the playoff, people say, well, they'll suck this year. Um, Well, everyone's standard is not that in any given year. So the standard, for example, at Georgia Tech, they've won three games each of the last two seasons. So if they win six this year, that is a quantum leap of improvement. They will not be in the Final Four, but that is a quantum leap in improvement. How do they get there? Because this is one of the tougher schedules in the ACC and college football. Jeff Collins will tell you that. How do they get there? Well, as you look at this schedule here, I think there are several losses if they repeat at quarterback the number 53.7, because that was the completion percentage last year for Jeff Sims. Now, he showed you some things against Florida State that got a lot of people excited in week one, and then they faltered. There was a lot of turnover issues. They think that they've rectified that. That was good for 115th in the country last year from teams that played. So they think they've rectified that, and the thing about it is you get them to 59%, it's a lot better. They are very fast at slot. They are very good catching the ball out of the backfield. They've got some complimentary pieces here. They got one of the best running backs in the conference, but they got to be able to complete passes. They got to be able to sustain drives. They got to be able to score is really the name of the game. And they couldn't do it to a high enough degree last year because there was no consistency in the past game and there were too many turnovers. So judge them. All I'm asking you is judge Georgia Tech by the proper standard. And the standard is not, well, they're not Clemson. Well, they weren't North Carolina this year. Interestingly enough, that North Carolina game is played in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It's a neutral site game. And um, you're not going to give much of a chance, nor am I, when they go to Clemson. But that Georgia Tech game, you know, if you want to really pull a ground-altering upset early in the year in the ACC, have Georgia Tech beat North Carolina in Atlanta. That would be a big one, because I don't think anyone's even circling that for North Carolina. So have that happen. Uh, what about Texas Tech? Yes, I said it. I, I think there's probably a bet or two out there that we just decided a winner on. The bet was probably, are they going to talk about Texas Tech at any point in the preseason? Yup. And why am I bringing them up? I'm not just doing it to check a box. So I'm having a little conversation with a person I would label a Big Ten or a Big 12 insider this week. I know insiders, and some of them live in the Big 12 for now. I don't know what that portion of land will be called in the future, but for now it's called the Big 12. And out of all the teams, when I asked, what's a program coaches are talking about that no one's talking about? He said, oh, that's easy, Texas Tech. And I said, interesting, tell me more. And he proceeded to tell me more. He said, first off, you got to understand, everybody looks at schedule. And I already kind of knew about the scheduling dynamics. But he said, forget about the schedule for a second. Like, you can look that up on your own. Do you understand that they went and got transfers from 10 different FBS programs over the offseat, excuse me, <laughs> almost said the O word, over the period of time that resides between spring ball and the start of the regular season? That period of time, they went and got 10. Well, they got guys from 10 different programs. Uh, one of them is Tyler Shuck, who was the starting quarterback at Oregon last year. So they will at the very least have experience at quarterback, but it's the size at the, what you would call the skill positions. It's the size there that has a lot of defensive staffs out there worried. See, a lot of those staffs, they don't get so scared anymore about the speedy wide receiver because they feel like, a lot of them run those stack defenses where they feel like you can run around all day. We'll do to you what Barry Odom did in the SEC last year to everyone not named Bama, essentially. They don't worry about that. But when you have a bunch of guys who are 6'5", which Texas Tech has this year, and you can just win 50-50 balls all day. You can turn 50-50s into 30-70s or 70-30s. That's what worries them. And they've got that at Texas Tech. Uh, it's a really tough name, so hold on. Let me go slow. Eric Ezukanma, probably not right. I do know this. He's, uh, he's their returning leading receiver, all Big 12 guy. Last one to do that in Lubbock was named Michael Crabtree, who I'm told did big things out there. But also... They've got a, a 6'5 freshman out there. Bradley, I believe, is his name. Tight end is 6'5. They got a lot of returning experience. Now, a lot of programs have that, but there are some specific matchup issues that have some staffs out in the Big 12 worried. Now, you want to know what the scheduling dynamics were. Let me pull out this freshly printed piece of paper. This almost sounds fake, but it's not. 
Jesse, I should have told you to make this graphic. You know, I know you've been busy today. Never mind. Okay, so I want you to visualize this for me. There are a lot of situations that we would call scheduling dynamic edges. And one of them, two of them, three of them stand out immediately. So TCU has a three-game stretch that goes Texas at Texas Tech at Oklahoma. Iowa State has a three-game stretch that goes Texas at Texas Tech at Oklahoma. They're the same. Notice the pattern. Oklahoma State has a three-game stretch that goes TCU at Texas Tech, Oklahoma. To wrap it up, because I have to talk slow, because a lot of times if you can't look at the piece of paper, uh, this kind of just all bleeds together. Texas Tech is in a sandwich spot, the middle of it, the jelly part of it, no less than three times this year for contending teams. There are three different contending programs in the Big 12 that go to Texas Tech the week before they play Oklahoma. Two out of those three teams also play Texas the week before they play Texas Tech, which is the week before they play Oklahoma. So a lot of schedulers are looking at Texas Tech and saying, hey, I don't bet, but if you guys bet futures, bet the over. And then another people, another group of people, the coaches, who are saying, hey, they got a lot of size. I don't know how we're going to cover some of these guys. So if you guys, I'm not a betting man myself, but if you do, bet the over. So I may just bet the team total over for Texas Tech. So those are some camp intel and whispers from elsewhere around the country. Okay, now I want to bring hope to America. Uh, Not in a political sense. I'm not running for president this cycle. 2028, maybe. Not 2024. But I do want to bring hope to America nonetheless. I may run for commissioner in 2024, but not president quite yet. There are some things I want to do in my personal life before then. But I do want to bring hope to you in this way. A lot of you have been lied to, and you've been led to believe that this is a sport now built for the very few at the expense of the very many, and if you're not named Alabama or Ohio State or Clemson, there is no seat for you at the playoff table. Now, you know we don't really believe in college football playoff segments here much at all, and especially in the preseason, but the entire context of this is quit worrying about the playoff, and if you are worried about the playoff, you need to look at it from a more access-oriented lens, because I think there's room for several programs this year. But to have that, you have to have vulnerability, which means the big boys have to have some mortality about themselves, and I think they have it this year. Now, what I'm about to say is going to sound extremely negative to some programs that aren't used to hearing negativity. It's not. What I am doing is I'm saying if you were to clip Ohio State, if you were to get Clemson or Bama or Georgia, Oklahoma, this is how it would happen. And this is more realistic than it may seem. So let's start with Ohio State. Now, this is one we've talked about a lot, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. Um, I think that you're going to have to see it before you believe it. But even this week one situation where they go to Minnesota, it's just not an easy spot. Week two against Oregon's one that everyone's going to be paying attention to. But there is really no Ohio State fan that's going to look at the Minnesota game and say, I'm worried we lose that. A lot of Ohio State fans have privately confided in me, I'm a little bit worried about it. But what they expect, even the ones who are worried, is we're going to start off early, it's going to be really rocky, it's going to be terrible, but we'll pull away and we'll win like 38 to 20 at the end. But um, you never know until you know. And no coaching staff's ever had to deal with this. The whole, we've got a lot of young guys who have never played in a full stadium before, and we got to take them on the road in week one against a really experienced team and specifically offensive line, running back, the kind of elements that can shave possessions off the clock if they start getting that thing rolling downhill. Minnesota's got all that, and that have the home field. Now, normally, I don't waste time talking about home field because when you see the at symbol, you know where it is. I don't need to tell you. I think it's undervalued here. So that's the first element. The second element is if Ohio State has not made improvement in their secondary and C.J. Stroud is a good quarterback – But even out of all that competition, him being the best, he never quite plays to the level of Justin Fields, therefore never fully taking advantage of the weapons around him. This is a team that mm, has that kind of vulnerability about it. Now, granted, I think it's early in the year where they're the most vulnerable, but don't just assume because they have all the talent in the world that it's going to play to that capability right off the bat. I don't expect that. Like, I think Ohio State will beat Minnesota, but I I would be surprised if they did just run up and down the field on them. So I expect a battle in week one. Therefore, I won't be disappointed. I will only be pleasantly surprised. How about Bama? 
This is the one that's preseason number one on most of the polls I've seen. I saw, uh, you know, I'm not going to even mention that. So um, how do you beat Alabama? Well, in this particular year, I spoke about this earlier in the show, so I'm going to talk about it again. I think a lot of folks in Tuscaloosa and out of Tuscaloosa are going to take for granted that the timing and rhythm and therefore the lethal nature of last year's offense is going to carry over. There are some out there who doubt it. It's not just because they're replacing starters. Bama's had years where they had a bunch of new starters and they ended up improving. It's not that. It's the specific elements I'm talking about. Like Mac Jones went in the first round, so he was plenty appreciated, but the specific facet of his game was that you never had to slow down when he threw a ball to you. He hit you in stride every time. And so they already had first-round receivers everywhere, but when those guys don't have to slow down when they're catching the ball, and you got Najee Harris in the backfield able to do that too, that really turns the lights out on 99% of teams or 100% of teams last year in America. That is not just going to be there in week one or week three or week six. It's not just going to be there. Now, eventually, I think they're going to have a product that they put on the field that will be among, if not the best in the country this year. They may be the best in the country wire to wire. That doesn't mean they can't get beat. And so think about this. Think about um, some, some third and six situations where last year they convert, and this year it's just a ball behind a receiver. Or Bryce Young's a little bit smaller in stature, some balls tipped at the line. It just changes one or two possessions in a game. How are you going to quantify the value of one or two possessions in a game before the game's played? You can't. You don't know how the opposition is going to take advantage of the opportunity or not. But that is the difference sometimes. That's what it takes. See, when Bama lost to Ole Miss a couple of years in a row, they were the best team both times. It doesn't matter. They got beat because that kind of stuff happened. I think one of them was like a five-turnover game. So we don't know at all how effective that offense is going to be coming out of the gate. Now, they're going to have a pretty lethal defense, and I will grant you that. I don't have much doubt about that. But I just think a lot of the nature that you became so accustomed to last year in labeling them this death star of a team, which they were, is expected to carry over. And you think, oh, well, if it all doesn't come over, 80% of it will come over. No, no, 0% of it comes over. You got an entirely new product this year that you have to build. And what percentage of production will you get relative to what you got last year? Well, that's a, a bigger question. But man, I, I think that there's going to be some stumbling out of the gate for them. They're going to be the better team on the field every time they play, as far as I can look at their schedule this year. Doesn't mean they can't be beaten, though. How about Clemson? Clemson's a program that is not going to be tested nearly to the degree that some of these other programs are in this year. But where are the question marks? Like, how would you beat them? Well, backup quarterback is one that they're talking about a lot. I don't think nationally people are talking about it so much because no one ever plans on seeing a backup quarterback play. But last couple times they've had trouble, it's been because the backup quarterback was in the game, or it's been when the backup quarterback was in the game. I wouldn't say DJ is the reason they lost to Notre Dame last year, but he was in the game. They don't have anything that they can win with at a championship level behind DJ Uyangalale. So let's just assume he's going to play and stay healthy the whole year, and you know, we'll, we'll kiss the sky on that one. The interior of their offensive line has obviously been a focal point uh, throughout Preview Magazine season. It's been a focal point for this coaching staff. It's something that's going to be tested right away in week one against Georgia. And the reason I focus on that, it's the, you know, it's the interior. It's not necessarily tackles we're talking about here. It's because, you know, DJ Uyangalale, for all of his accolades, is not the runner Trevor Lawrence was. And so when you're getting disruption up the middle, you know, and you're, you're, you're counting on that passing game to really win you ball games, uh, that can spell an issue. And again, it's not some season-long problem. If it results in a couple of stalled drives or maybe a tip ball up in the air that gets intercepted in one game, you just never know when that is the one that costs you. And for Clemson, costing you in one game is a little bit different. Bama loses a game. Georgia loses a game. Well, they can afford to. Oklahoma loses a game. They can afford to. You don't necessarily know if Clemson could just afford to lose a game. Even the Georgia game. Georgia game. Which brings me to another point that they have no control over, unfortunately. And it's the rest of the ACC. You see, I think the ACC will be better this year. As a collective conference, I think it'll be a very good product. But I don't know that. I could be wrong. It's happened before. Probably will happen again. And so if they don't get cooperation out of their own conference and they were to lose to Georgia in week one, even if they win the rest of the way, 
you start to ask yourself, do they need help elsewhere? Now, my personal opinion is if they lose in week one and take care of business, they're going to be in. But it's not a slam dunk. So that's an element they don't even have control over. The control they have is win the game, win all the games they play. But I do think, yes, offensive line in particular, that's an area they can be had. And, you know, here's another fun thing to watch. Another fun thing to watch is when they came out of that game against Ohio State last year, Brent Venables was on record, Dabo was on record as saying, you know, we really are disappointed that we were not physical. We just weren't physical enough at the line of scrimmage. And a lot of those guys are back. The only difference is they've added another year on their birth certificate. They're back. But we all know something else is in play, too. There were a lot of young guys who have added a year of development at a very key portion of your life to physically develop. So I don't think that's going to be, I don't think physicality, especially defensively, is going to be an issue for them this year. How about Oklahoma? How are you going to beat the Sooners? Well, they themselves have a very big piece to replace at center. The guy's name is Creed Humphrey, so he's off to the league. They ask the center to do a whole lot. Most offenses do. But Lincoln Riley will tell you, we ask ours to basically be a a NASA astronaut that just happens to play football instead. And so when we lose one, that's why they always go to the NFL. But the downside for us is it's really hard to replace them. Luckily, they have recruited to where they can develop and replace. And so they feel good. If you talk to people close to Oklahoma, they feel good. Staffs have felt good about replacements before and ended up finding out that when the lights came on, nah, they were a little bit higher on them than they should have been. So we'll see. I'm not even not even specifically talking about Oklahoma at that point. That applies to a lot of folks. But football, again, comes down to very specific matchups in any given week, uh, very specific situations, very specific drives. And so I'm not looking at Oklahoma saying, ooh, that's center. That's going to be a problem for them all year long. It could be that it's great 80% of the time, but it could be also that they come up on a team that is a matchup problem on the interior that ends up throwing the crowbar and the bicycle spokes of the timing and rhythm of their offense that ends up leading to a loss. So that's how you clip them. And the other way you clip them is to have Spencer Rattler himself be rattled and just not quite be that that assumed 15 to 20% better quarterback than he was a year ago. Now, he played much better down the stretch last year, and so it's always assumed that there'll be just a year-over-year incremental improvement. You know, you remember Trevor Lawrence won a national title as a freshman. True freshman. So the question was, man, how, how are we going to stop him from winning two more? Tua, at halftime, comes in as a true freshman, wins one. How are we going to stop him from winning a couple of more? Neither one of them ever won a title again. Neither one of them did. So don't just assume these guys get better after year one. That's what I'm saying. I expect Spencer Rattler to, but how much better does he have to get for them to buzzsaw the entire competition? Because last year they lost a few games. You know, we talked about that earlier. It's not just on him, uh, but higher level quarterback play can bail you out. So are they going to get the caliber quarterback play this year that has that bailout potential? Lastly, let's talk the University of Georgia. How are you going to beat Georgia? Well, Clemson stands a very good chance. They are favored in the game against Georgia in week one. One of the things they're going to have to worry about at Georgia is health issues. They've already had them crop up this year. I mean, they're dealing with them right now as we speak, so that's been well documented. So it could just be that injuries and health issues derail them. Also, there are a couple of positions. One we've spoken about, one we really haven't. I did the the Junkyard Dogcast with uh, Jake Rowe a couple of weeks ago. And he specifically was talking about that outside linebacker spot, which is viewed as, if anything, a strength because of the names in those positions. Behind those names is mystery, is total mystery. They need to stay healthy there. Now, they don't have injuries there right now. They need to stay healthy there. And like we've already seen, they can't be affording to drop guys in the secondary either. And so quickly, when you watch Georgia, if they have any kind of issue at outside linebacker or any more issues in their secondary, it could quickly lead to a situation where their pass rush isn't there and pass coverage isn't there, and as a result, they're having to ask their offense to do something they've really never really asked their offense to do, and that's go out and trade points and outscore folks. Now, they already, they already want to be committed to that kind of offensive approach this year, but they want to do it in terms that dictate, not in terms that react. And so if you were to get Georgia, that's how you'd get them. Now, even having said that, you look at the schedule – And even I'll admit, after that week one game against Clemson, it's hard to spot the losses. I asked on Twitter today, do you think there are some two-loss teams here? I pretty much listed all the teams we've talked about. 
And a lot of folks who said, yes, I think there's a two-loss team there, they said Georgia. Well, look at the schedule here if you're on YouTube. I mean, they play Clemson. Yeah, anyone could see that. The Tigers are favored. But where? Even if things go wrong now, where are they tripping up? Is it when Arkansas comes in? Is it when they go to Auburn? I mean, does anyone, in other words, have confidence that that offense at Auburn is going to be capable of taking advantage of those kinds of inefficiencies or weaknesses or potential mistakes? Uh, The Florida game is the obvious one you would circle. I think some folks more inside the league in the SEC would say watch out for Missouri. All right, but I'm asking, are you going to pick the upset or not? And most people wouldn't. So it would be probably the conference championship game would be the next one you would circle. So I'm not telling you that, you know, all these folks are racking up two or three losses, but I am telling you there are going to be some losses. There's probably, out of the five teams we just listed, Ohio State, Bama, Clemson, Oklahoma, Georgia, there's at least one two-loss team there. There may be a couple of two-loss teams there. College football be crazy like that. All right, let's wrap it up with something I wanted to discuss that has been bubbling for a little while, and I'm not going to say it crescendo today because it didn't. I think it's still very much in the building stages. But um, it's, it's happening at North Carolina, and I was over on the Inside Carolina board today in advance of this segment, and I just wanted to ask the fine folks over there, has it happened yet? The thing, the inflection point, the thing that pushes you over the top, has it happened? Is it coming still? And if it's coming, what does it look like? So this pertains to everyone. This is not just a North Carolina segment. I think this really is going to hit home, and what they're doing at Chapel Hill should hit home with a lot of programs that have underachieved. If you've ever been in an office setting and you've known the salaried employee that constantly complains about everything and is totally inefficient, even though they're capable of doing everything they've been hired to do, but they don't get work done and they just complain all the time. Meanwhile, the grinder, quiet intern is just making the wheel turn in the background somewhere. If you've ever seen that dynamic play out in the office, that's what's happening in college football. You've got several complainers, and then you've got North Carolina just grinding away, just putting together a winner. So today, the reason I wanted to talk about it today is Travis Shaw did indeed commit to North Carolina. This is a monumental achievement for them. He is the second highest rated commitment ever in North Carolina recruiting history. He is a five-star defensive lineman. He's 6'5", 310. He is out of Greensboro. I was almost at this commitment today. I can't remember why that fell through. Anyway, uh, it was yesterday. So anyway, um, second highest rated commit ever. So what is this? Is he going to win championships for him single-handedly? No. But this continues a pattern because now you start to tie this name into names like Javari Ritzy, into names like Keyshawn Silver. Remember what they did in state last year in general. They cleaned up recruiting in state. So people even last year, when that groundswell of in-state momentum started to build and crescendo, people started looking and saying, ooh, that Travis Shaw kid in Greensboro next year. Ooh, man, I don't know, though. You know, he's, he's got five stars next to his name, and everyone's offering him. How are we going to land him? Well, they just did. What does this have to do, though? What does this have to do with other programs? I want you to notice what you don't hear from North Carolina. I have not heard a single time any of these folks say, man, I wish we could compete, but college football is just set up against us. It's built to keep us out. The system is rigged against us. None of them are saying it. You know why? Because they're too busy playing the system. They're too busy building a winner. They're too busy looking around for the glass ceiling that a lot of you have claimed is on college football above the heads of programs like theirs and saying, oh, I don't see it. I I, I hear a lot of excuses. I don't actually see it. And Mac Brown has certainly come in and said, stop listening to these people talk about ceilings. There isn't one here. Let's go knock it out of the park in our home state. Let's instill a culture that is unique to North Carolina, and let's go win football games. Uh, They've done one. They've done two. They're in the process of doing three and could do number three to a much greater extent this year. North Carolina is capable of whatever they want to be capable of. Uh, The only thing that has stopped them and many other programs in the past is just not believing you can do it and not getting the right mixture of people in there. So not only do they have the staff, not only are they recruiting with their hair on fire, not only do they have quarterbacks solved now with Howell and in the future with Drake May, which don't discount that at all, even though I listed it like fourth, not only have they done all that, not only do they have an incredible culture, players want to go there now. Coaches, administrative types, graphic artists want to go there now. And so they've invested and they've got investment from the right places. There, there, are no, there are no 14 different agendas 
at North Carolina. Everyone understands what the deal is. Everyone's on the train. It's moving the same direction. And it's ridiculous when you look at them accomplish it. And they're doing it with a coach that a lot of people kind of scoffed at when he was hired. And then you look at all the millions that some other programs spent and the vastly superior resource pool that a lot of other programs have at logos and brands that have much longer represented college football tradition and dominance than that North Carolina logo has, and they can't get it done, and North Carolina is. Now, you want to tell me the determining factor is separation in this sport? You want to tell me the determining factor is, well, the college football playoff has just created this gulf? No, it hasn't. Either that or North Carolina is is the best group of bridge builders in the world. I don't think they just built a bridge over a canyon. I think they got to it and said, well, this is a ditch. Hold on, hold my stuff, and I'll hop over, and then toss it to me, and then you hop over, and then we'll all hop over, and all of a sudden we're over here with the winners. So that leads me to this point. This is a huge season for them. You could be in the process of watching a program join that Tier 2 or Tier 1 club. They're not there right now. They are not there yet. One of the things I love about the Inside Carolina board is when I go over there, um, no one calls me the names that some of these other boards do in my DMs. But secondly, they're brutally realistic about where they are. And so I went over there today and I said, what's the inflection point? In other words, if you make it to the mountaintop, if you win an ACC championship in the near future, is the reason it happens already in the house? Has it already occurred? Or is it in the future? And what's that inflection point going to be? Uh, I think the consensus amongst Carolina fans is, well, we have not gotten that landmark win. Now, they almost beat Clemson a couple of years ago. But even if they did that, it would have been ahead of schedule. But if they go to South Bend this year, for example, and they were to beat Notre Dame, they had trouble with them last year. If they beat Notre Dame this year on the road, depending on what the Irish are at that point, that could be it. But I think we all know what ultimately this is leading to. Because as long as Clemson is what they are, you're just running your head into a brick wall until you top them. And to top them, in a lot of cases, you've got to outscore them, but you also have to have waves of defensive linemen. And they did not have that last year, and they are building towards having that now. Uh, they would tell you, that coaching staff would tell you, got about eight or nine defensive linemen that we feel like we can play winning football with at this point. Now, if they keep recruiting the way they are, they're going to end up recruiting over some guys. That's not a bad thing. That's a very good thing. But I want you to pay attention to what's happening at North Carolina and the process and the formula that's in place. And then I want to rhetorically ask you, what stops a dozen other programs from doing that? Have they found a magic ingredient? Does Mac Brown have a cheat code on college football? Or did they just understand, there are no real shortcuts, but there's a way to do this a lot quicker maybe than people think is possible at North Carolina. They're in the process of doing it. And you know what else they did? They also walked in and they looked around and they said, where is Miami? Anybody seen Florida State? So who's going to take this number two chair? Now, that's not their ultimate goal, but the number two chair in the ACC was wide open when Mac Brown got here. And he said, well, that number two chair is, is not 10 miles away. It's right over there. So God, why don't we go sit in the number two chair while we figure out how to get in the king's chair? Let's go sit in the number two chair. They're there. They're already there. And so it's college football. Things change year to year, but they're there right now. So the next step is you got to find a way to beat Clemson. That's the next step. Is that going to happen this year? I don't know. They don't play in the regular season. But what I'm saying is you're watching a program that is very much on a climb, and they don't perceive that ceiling to be on them the, the way that some of these programs do. And they don't have that woe-is-me mentality. They think everything is possible over there. And since they think that, here's the added bonus. Everything is possible over there. You actually can win a national championship, as it turns out, at North Carolina. All right, that's a good show tonight. Uh, we almost won an hour. And this time next week, we'll have games to predict and, dare I say, even some games to react to. Now, full disclosure... We're not doing full game prediction week for some of the week zero games. I mean, I know that UCLA-Hawaii gets some of you really stirred up. And I may have some thoughts Thursday, uh, but we're not doing full game predictions. But there are a lot of things happening this week. Make sure you're following Twitter, Instagram, at LateKickJosh. And next Sunday, we're going to be wall-to-wall. There are so many things we're debuting in the next two weeks. Some of them I've told you about, some I have not told you about yet. So just keep it locked in and make sure you are subscribed to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel and subscribe to the Late Kick podcast. Tell 10 of your friends and make sure you're sharing. 
Everything I just asked you to do is free. And if we all do that, then we'll all keep it free. So thank you so much. For Director Colin, for our hurricane refugee survivors in Connecticut, and you, thank you so much. Have a great start to your week, and God bless.